Sarah. Hi, Allison. So for those of you listening regularly, you'll remember that we've been talking about farming a bit in France recently. Pastoral farming, mostly sheep and cows that are threatened by things like wolves and bears. But France has its own share of intensive agriculture, and I'm talking notably about pigs. And it's thanks to pigs that we have all this wonderful cured meat in France, Sarah. All this charcuterie and lardons and saucissons. Yes, and thanks, thanks to the pigs, yes, coming from a vegetarian. <laughs> But um, it is an important part of French gastronomy, an important part of the French economy. And a huge amount of it is made from pork raised in Brittany. There were nearly 14 million pigs slaughtered in 2018 in Brittany alone. 14 million? Yeah, in a really a small, it's a pork. huge amount in a really small area. And that intensity is starting to have consequences on the environment, notably in the form of killer seaweed. It sounds silly, but it's actually pretty serious. This summer, the issue came up again. Hot temperatures made massive amounts of seaweed wash up on the shores of the Baie de Brioc, which is in Brittany on the shores of the English Channel. Yeah, a real blot on the landscape uh, in such a, a pretty area. I was there over the summer and there were signs up saying that, you know, don't go on the beach. These are closed. Yeah, because, yeah, it's ugly. But also the seaweed, when it rots, produces this smelly, toxic gas called hydrogen sulfide, which can actually kill you. It's made a lot of people sick over the years. And in 2016, a jogger was found near the outlet of a stream, asphyxiated. Now, the actual cause of death has never been officially attributed to this seaweed, but there are suspicions that what happened is he cracked through the dried surface of a, of a bunch of dried seaweed, letting out this gas, and it killed him. So that was in 2016. Clearly, it's not a completely new problem. Not at all new. In fact, the first alert was 50 years ago. But the problem is in order to solve it we're dealing with pigs seaweed lives and thrives off of nitrates and the nitrates come from pig manure kind of sludge that ends up leaching into the water now allison have you ever been to a pig farm i haven't but i sure smelt them uh, in Brittany over this summer <laughs> yeah it's pretty stinky um i've never been to one either a regular farm has pigs raised on gratings and their waste the urine and the feces runs through the floor into this kind of liquid waste that's siphoned off and that's used for fertilizer and that kind of thing. But because it's liquid, it easily runs off into rivers and ends up in the bay feeding this killer seaweed. Um, in 2016, the concentration of nitrates in Brittany's bays was 31.8 milligrams per liter. Now, what does that mean? Apparently, to really reduce seaweed growth, the waters must contain less than 10 milligrams per liter, so a third of that amount. So the solution has to be at least partly to reduce the amount of pig waste that ends up in these rivers. Yeah, absolutely. But that's easier said than done. Um, authorities are hesitant to take on agriculture because it is such an important part of the, the economy and important for the area. Um, although some farmers are testing out different ways of farming on their own. I recently went to visit La Ferme de la Lande. It's in a village called Medriac, about 30 kilometers from the city of Rennes. The barn here looks like any other barn. It's gray and concrete, has a pointed roof. The sides are covered in canvas sheets. Inside, there are six stalls with dozens of pigs of different sizes and ages in each one. They're rooting around in a thick, mucky layer of straw mixed in with their manure. There's a platform above each stall with bales of hay. It smells strong, but not overwhelming. 
Yannick Dinuel goes into one stall wearing knee-high boots. His pigs come up to his waist and they nibble at his fingers. He doesn't look like a revolutionary, but his barn is a huge departure from other pig farms in the area, where the pigs are raised on bare, slatted floors. Le cochon qui fait des éjections tombe en dessous dans la cave, on va dire. Denuel says the system allows for pigs' excrement and urine to drop into troughs underneath the barn. Pig manure is runny and sludgy, so the system allows it to be cleaned out regularly. But here, there are no troughs, no siphons. There are 250 pigs in the barn today. Denuel gets them when they're 70 days old. They weigh 30 kilos. He keeps them in the barn, fattening them up for six to seven months to quadruple their weight to 120 kilos. He produces 800 pigs a year, about a third of the average Breton pig farmer. But even with fewer animals, using straw is much more labor-intensive. He spends 15 to 20 minutes a day laying out new straw, and then he has to muck out the stalls. To clean a regular pig barn, you just rinse the floor. It takes a couple of hours. It takes me about two days to empty and wash the barn, then remove the manure, take it to the fields and spread it out. I do that about six times every year. But the extra work is worth it to better manage the manure. The straw acts as a kind of sponge for the sludge. When Denuel mucks out the stalls, the straw manure mix is solid whereas regular pig waste is runny. And of course, when it rains, the manure goes straight into the river. So the idea with the straw is to try to bring the manure closer to the needs of the plants. The straw manure delivers the nitrogen more slowly and makes it less sensitive to water runoff. It also fertilizes better because the straw adds organic matter. Denuel also considers straw to be more comfortable for the animals, and that's increasingly important to his customers, who want to see pigs happily rooting around in the hay rather than stuck in concrete cages. The benefits of straw, of course, come with a price. The extra work means the costs of production are higher, 10 to 20 percent more than a more standard way of farming. Also, pigs are sensitive to temperature variations. Going into the barn with hay and mucking it out brings in the outside air. We have overbred pigs so much that they have become a bit fragile. Pigs do not like drafts. If they get too cold, they can start coughing. Temperatures have gotten colder recently. Today, several of the pigs are coughing. It's a virus, according to a vet who came earlier that day. A sick pig eats less and fattens up slower. I keep my pigs for between 180 and 220 days. In a regular pig farm, where they're on grates in closed barns, they grow more quickly. They'll be done at 150 days. Denuel has built his business to absorb the extra costs. He sells directly to his consumers, individuals and restaurants in Rennes, the regional capital. Very little of his production actually ends up in supermarkets. His parents had already started selling directly to consumers, and he expanded on the business. He built a kitchen to make the ham and sausage himself on the farm. There's a store on site that's open twice a week. He's found that customers are willing to pay more. People understand that there are products made in such a way that they cost more and they'll have to pay more for them. So, Sarah, can we imagine this way of pig farming using straw being, as it were, rolled out over France? 
Yeah, for all of the millions of pigs. Um, well, uh, no, <laughs> not right away. There are challenges. As we heard, it's very expensive or more expensive than standard pig farming. It takes longer, has a lot more work. Um, and then there's this basic question of where to get the straw. Um, it doesn't sound like much, but when you're talking about that many pigs, you need a lot of straw. Yannick Denuel told me he uses about 20 hectares of straw for his pigs. It's already a lot. A more standard size farm would need 60 to 80 hectares, and people just don't have that kind of land. So, of course, if you wanted the straw, you'd have to find new, you know, logistics chains, maybe finding straw from grain growing regions of France, shipping it to Brittany, maybe in exchange for high quality pig manure. Mm. <laughs> but it does involve change and, and shifts in habit, of course. And as we know, habits are hard to change. Absolutely. Especially in agriculture, people have been doing things for years. They've invested in a certain way. They're not going to change. And it's such a backbone of the economy in Brittany and in France in general. Very strong unions. No one really wants to upset them. Yeah. And the meat industry is suffering a bit at the moment. It's true with prices and that kind of thing. Activists and environmentalists are saying that as a result, they, there really needs to be support for farmers if you really want them to change. They need financial support, also technical, and especially you need to teach them these alternative techniques like the straw raised pigs early on so they even know what they could do differently. Let's turn back the clock now to one of the darkest chapters of France's colonial history. On the 17th of October 1961, so 58 years ago today, more than 200 Algerian protesters marching through Paris were killed by the police. So October 1961, that was a few months before Algeria actually gained independence from France in 1962. This was at the end of the War of Independence, right? Yes, and while fighting had been going on in Algeria since the beginning of the war in 52, the conflict spread to mainland France in 1958, and there were violent exchanges between the French police and the Paris wing of a guerrilla movement known as the Algerian National Liberation Front, that's the FLN, which was fighting to free Algeria from French colonial rule. And on the evening of the 17th of October, between 25 and 30,000 people went out onto the streets all over Paris. They were protesting peacefully against a French security crackdown in Algeria. The French police, led by the Paris prefect Maurice Papon, brutally crushed the protesters. More than 11,000 were captured and many bodies were thrown literally into the River Seine. So how were the French police allowed to be so violent? Well, sir, it goes back to 1955, so to the early days of the Algerian War. The French government passed a law which allowed the authorities to curb any kind of insurrection. It meant that they could prevent suspected Algerian revolutionaries from gathering in large numbers in public and plotting against the government. And by October 61, there was a nighttime curfew in place, but it applied only to Algerian workers. Who were, incidentally, French citizens, right? Because Algeria was still France. Absolutely. Huh. So there, there's a plaque today on the Saint-Michel Bridge um, in the centre of Paris that commemorates these deaths. But even now, you know, no one knows exactly how many people were killed. The day after the demonstrations, the left-wing French newspaper Libération reported the official toll as three dead. But the FLN claimed it was far more than that. They said dozens were killed. Now, according to historians, we know that more than 200 people were slaughtered. And at the time, this incident really didn't cause much of a stir. No, because... 
back in 1961, it was very difficult for France to officially recognize the killings. Why? Because some French officials had carried on occupying senior positions in French governments for several years afterwards. Papon himself remained a cabinet minister right up until 1981. That was the year the socialist president, François Mitterrand, came to power. Um, but he didn't really change much either, did he? No, he'd been both interior minister and then justice minister during the Algerian War. So, so complicated. Yeah, he had stuff involved there as well. And the French historian Jean-Luc Inaudi, who's a specialist on the massacre, he's written books about this, he's argued that Mitterrand maintained a sort of willful ignorance of events. Inaudi did a lot of research into what had happened and attitudes towards the Paris police chief Maurice Papon at the time began to change in 1997 when he was finally convicted of crimes against humanity during World War II. But it wasn't until 2011 that the presidential candidate François Hollande promised to recognise the crime as a massacre if he was elected president. A year later, he was, and so he did it. And he broke decades of government silence by finally calling the Paris massacre a bloody repression. So that's already acknowledgement at a state level. That's one thing, but it's still not really well known in the general public um, or French kids, I don't think, are taught that much about this, are they? They're not. And you're absolutely right. You can talk to French people and they say, what, massacre? No, especially the younger generation. The Algerian War is now part of French school history textbooks. And in that context, there are mentions of the massacre. But for many academics, it's clearly not enough. Sarah, would you say the French were diplomatic? Hmm. I think diplomacy is maybe built into the culture and the language. Um, I don't know. It's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> well, whether they are or not, they certainly, professionally speaking, are considered to be diplomatic because France has the third largest diplomatic network in the world, just behind the US and China. And one of the most prestigious posts is being French ambassador to the US. Right. They're longtime allies. It's, a, it's an important post in terms of policy and that kind of thing, not just decoration. Yeah, exactly. Very strategically important, very diplomatically important. And it was held up until six months ago by Gérard Arrault. And he's just published his memoirs. It's called Passport Diplomatique, that's Diplomatic Passport. And in that book, he traces four decades, in fact, of diplomatic life, including some rough and tumble years with the Trump administration most recently, and his time as ambassador to Israel in the early years when he witnessed the crumbling of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Now, Arrault is a a straight-talking diplomat. He's even been called a samurai of diplomats. And he's built up a reputation as a whiz on social media. But that sometimes got him into a bit of trouble. I sat down with him to ask about how diplomatic life has evolved over the last four decades, notably with the arrival of social media. My first posting was in 82, and uh, I was a young diplomat in Israel. And at the time, first, you didn't have internet, you didn't have computers. And in a sense, the information was a bit rare. You were chasing information. It was a sort of the romantic vision of a diplomat who were trying to get access to secrecy. And right now, it's the opposite. You know, really, information is everywhere. And the question is really to select which information is important or is relevant to the job. Also, the Quai d'Orsay, the French foreign ministry, was in a sense quite hierarchical. It was a sort of conservative body. 
with dynasties of uh, aristocrats and uh, and now of course it has been democratized it's much more open much more diverse it's not exactly still the reflection of the reality of the french society but we are on our way of course one of the things you've got to get to grips with nowadays as a modern diplomat is social media and that includes Twitter and I have to say that you've become such a good Twitterer that even the kid say when you retired said au revoir, goodbye to our favourite Twitter ambassador Gérard Arrault. You've done some tweets which have been extremely um, controversial <laughs> Controversial could be the word for example you've said well this is actually a funny one I think in 2012 you said a veto is like sex the first time you blush and then you get used to it that is mega undiplomatic but extremely witty <laughs> but you, you know really there are other examples where i think the kedorsev really was not smiling after the tweets i produced on donald no, trump for example example yes twitter it's not my generation you know really and i did it under the instruction of the kedorsev i think after that maybe they have regretted it <laughs> Uh, also, the fact was that I was in the U.S. and if I had been ambassador to China or Russia, I would have done maybe tweeting about Versailles or the, the Cathedral of Chartres. Uh, so it was different. It was an open society uh, where 75% of the information of the people is coming from the social media. If you want to exist in the social media, uh, in a sense, you have to make some noise because if you really, if you are uttering only platitudes, nobody will follow you. So do you have any regrets having to tweeted on the evening when Donald Trump was elected the 9th of November 2016 and you tweeted something like after Brexit and this election a world is collapsing before our very eyes I've got vertigo yes I think uh, I was right on the substance so uh, why because nobody had expected Brexit nobody had expected Trump so this very morning, I concluded that Western societies were facing a major crisis, that populism was a wave throughout the Western world. And of course, I was thinking of the next presidential elections in France in May 2017. Uh, it was not criticizing Trump in any way, and I deleted the tweet after two minutes, but unfortunately, it was two in the morning, and two in the morning means eight in the morning in Paris, so it was in all the radio, all the yeah. TV. Uh, I'm ready to admit it. It was a mistake. If I can just go back to when you chose to become a diplomat, and you say it was born out of a desire for exile. What do you mean by that? You know, I come from the middle class, provincial middle class in France. Really, I went through what we call in French the social elevator, thanks to school. And uh, uh, But I didn't have any calling, special calling for diplomacy. And by chance, I became a, a diplomat. And it was also at a time where I was not very happy in my private life and uh, decided that it would be better to leave Paris, to leave France. So there was a sort of personal, private and uh, professional conjunction which brought me to diplomacy and I, I have never regretted it. You're openly gay. Was it in any way complicated to be a diplomat? All these dinners, you know, and entertaining with their spouses. You, you know, really, there is the French way which has always been, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Uh, in America, it's, it's seen as a constraint, but in the French system, it's seen as a, a freedom because, in a sense, you don't talk about your personal life and nobody will ask you about it. And that's a sort of respect, which was very convenient for me because I didn't hide, but I didn't talk about it. Everybody knew more or less, but nobody was asking it. 
I know that for the Americans, it's very weird, a very weird way. That sounds a bit like hypocrisy, but um, that's the way the French system works, and I, I enjoyed it. There was the dinners, you know, really, and I, I was going as single. I was going there in the, in the dinners. What changed was in America, because the first time I was interviewed in Washington in 2014, the American journalist immediately raised my private life, and uh, a French journalist would have never done it. And so I was not embarrassed but I had to answer. So I was not going to lie, obviously. Uh, she was American, so I was not going to give her a lesson about the respect of private life. So I decided to say the truth. And actually what is interesting is, you know, really, even in a Trumpian uh, Washington, the Americans are actually very open. So I was invited with my partners in a, in a very natural way by the Americans. So the objection was not coming from the American, but my, from my partner who considered that his dinners were deadly boring. <laughs> and uh, basically most of the time didn't want to go. And I understand it. <laughs> In the United States, what do you think is perhaps the thing that the Americans most struggle to understand about contemporary France? Well, actually, uh, of course, I traveled extensively throughout the U.S., and I was used to go to the universities, you know, really to engage into a dialogue with the students. And there is something that the Americans can't understand, but I, I think it's not only the Americans, it's the French secularism, la laïcité. That's really something which is so anti or not anti, but so no American. So uh, keeping religion out of the public domain exactly, 100%. Exactly, so the question of the veil, of you know, course. forbidding the veil in public schools and in the, in the administration, you know, really. So that was really, we had a very, very tough and very tense dialogue with the students. But I, I held my line and uh, I loved the dialogue. I knew that I was not going to convince the American students. We have a, a totally different experience of, mm. of religion. You know, in France, basically, secularism was to protect the state from the religion because the Roman Catholic Church wanted to have an influence on the power. In the U.S., it's to protect religion from the state because the founders of, of the U.S. didn't want to have an established church at the expense of uh, the dissenters. So it's really the opposite. Yeah. And as you know, the value of religion is really very different. In America, you know, it's a value. You are talking about your own religion. While in France, as you know, it's very private. And in a sense, there is also anti-religious strike in the, in the French culture. You've mentioned that one of the things you loved about your job um, was this chance to see how foreigners saw France. Because we know that the French, they're not necessarily very patriotic. There isn't a great deal of pride to be French. But what reactions were you getting from abroad? Well, first, I think it's not bragging or it's not a propaganda. But uh, what is striking is that France actually has a very strong existence in the imagination of the people. You know, really, uh, we are a country of 65 million of inhabitants. But actually, we have an influence, an aura, which is going well beyond these 65 millions of inhabitants. You know, you, you meet people in the most surprising places who are really, who love France, who speak French, who, who love French literature and French culture. So, so for me, it has always been a feeling a bit of, uh, of pride. And, uh, you know, really, uh, when you're an ambassador, you are making more or less uh, the same jokes. And one of the jokes I was making was telling the, the Americans, because I was in Washington, to say, you know, really, I'm so grateful because I don't know how you can love the French the way you do, because we are unbearable. You're unbearable. <laughs> You're clearly not. <laughs> clearly not for some. 
So one of the things that Gérard Aro highlighted there was the difficulty that the U.S. and other countries have to understand French laïcité or secularism. Um, people find it strange that France bans headscarves in public administrations and at school. And the subject came back uh, big time this week, the subject about whether or not women wearing veils should be allowed to accompany school groups as pure volunteers. Right. So a, a minor issue, but the reason why it came roaring back into the spotlight is because last week, last Friday, a woman who wears a headscarf was accompanying her son's class to visit the regional council in Burgundy. And during that council meeting in the big council room, a member of the hard right national rally confronted her about wearing a headscarf. He called for her to be to leave the building. He said, this is a public building. You can't wear it. And he tweeted a video of the confrontation that went viral. It was seen like four million times. It's incredible because what she was doing was not, in fact, illegal. There is a law in France going back to 2004, which prohibits the wearing of conspicuous religious symbols in public schools and bans the wearing of the hijab, the headscarf, in classrooms and government offices. But this woman was a volunteer. She was a mother accompanying students. She was not a, a state employee. Yeah, but this uh, issue touched a nerve beyond the law. Everyone's now weighing in, especially, especially because it occurred only a few days after this attack at the Paris police prefecture. Remember, a man stabbed several police officers to death and it turned out that he'd been radicalized. Yeah, so it's a very sensitive time in France. And just after the attack, President Macron warned of an Islamist hydra. He called on people to look out for signs of radicalization. The prime minister then clarified this, giving examples, pointing specifically to, for example, men growing beards, praying a lot, converting to Islam. Yeah, and now people are latching onto this headscarf, as uh, they say, a sign of Islamic radicalism. The national rally called the headscarf-wearing woman in this incident an Islamist Provocation. Those are very strong words. Strong words. She's actually suing the far-right members who harassed her. She said it uh, was violence of a racial nature committed by people in public authority. She's also filing another complaint for incitement to racial hatred, which in France is a crime. So clearly there's a mixing up, isn't there, of religious Islam on the one hand and political Islam on the other. And the subject has even divided the government. The education minister has come out and said headscarves are not welcome in France, while the government spokesperson has said banning them would definitely not be a good idea. The polls, meanwhile, show that a majority of French people do agree women wearing headscarves should not be allowed to accompany school trips. On Wednesday, Macron warned against stigmatizing Muslims. <laughs> he said people shouldn't make what he called a fatal shortcut between Islam and the fight against terrorism. But you could argue that he did slightly open the door to this. Yeah, with his asking people to watch out for signs of radicalization. Mm. Of course, everyone is taking what they want out of this issue. Yeah, and it's six months ahead of local elections, of course. Very important elections in France. Yeah, and you can even see the different parties trying to maybe capitalize on this. Potentially a, a, a reason people would, would, would vote for them. You have the right-wing uh, Républicains who are going to present a bill in Senate banning headscarf-wearing women on school trips. Prime Minister Edouard Philippe said the government is not favorable to such a law, and given the political dynamics in Parliament, the bill probably won't go anywhere. But it shows you where people's mindsets are at in France right now.
Sarah, last week we talked about immigration and I referred to an audit by a number of economists which showed that immigrants were not a weight to the French economy. Mm. Yeah, I want to do a little mea culpa because I got the dates mixed up and in fact the report was not that recent. It actually went back to 2014. Uh, so before the current so-called migrant crisis. Yeah, so I went back to try and do a bit of checking to make sure that things hadn't changed that much. It turns out that more recent data, data from 2018 from the Organization for Cooperation on Economic Development, the OECD, which is here in Paris, has confirmed that the long-term impact of migration on your average French citizen's economic situation is in fact neutral. That's to say migrants indeed do not weigh on the country's economy. Okay, so we've set the record straight there. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on Spotlight on France. Today's program was mixed by Nicolas Doro. If you enjoyed it, then why not subscribe wherever you get your podcast you could also leave us a comment to help us get better known or write to us with suggestions for subjects you might be interested in at spotlight.france at rfi.fr and we'll be back with the next show in two weeks actually we're taking next week off um so we'll be back school with holidays more, <laughs> school holidays <laughs> obligé um so we'll we'll be back with more stories from france beyond the baguette in two weeks time bye for now okay.